0: and the coffee and all that fellowship that's really cool I uh, we need when I go home I think we're going to try and do that I I don't know I don't know if we can afford all the donuts so but uh, that's that's really cool uh, listen I'm, I'm blessed to be here with you Tim's a very good friend I, I've known him for years and Jan and they're just such a blessing to us and we're excited about what God is doing up here and Elizabeth we're really excited about it. I mean for years We've been praying that, you know, God would, would send people to the, you know, to the field. Uh, we, we came to Pennsylvania back in 1984 from the state of California. Uh, we got saved at Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck was our, our pastor there. Uh, uh, came to, to Pennsylvania and, you know, man, it was just like dark, you know, hard, and just started praying, God, please send workers out here. And, and you know, uh, and so we're just really excited about what God's doing with, with Tim and Jan. And oh my gosh, they're kids. I mean, I haven't seen them in a while. They were little guys. They, in fact, they came to a, a, last time I really saw them, they came to a, a, a worship conference that we had. and I can't wait to tell the guy that did the worship, you know, hey, I went to, to Tim and Jan's church, and they're up there doing worship, man, in front of the congregation. It's going to be really cool. So, it, you know, it's so neat and, uh, to see what God's doing. And, and I really, I believe in that. When Jesus said that, uh, you know, he prayed that we would bring forth much fruit and that our fruit would remain, that we would be fruitful, I think that's more than just our jobs. And I, I really think it's our children. You know, the fruit of our children, the fruit of the womb is God's reward for us. And not only our children, but then our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. I don't know how many of you here this morning have, you know, grandchildren in the sense of and watching them walk in a relationship with Jesus Christ is so, so exciting, so wonderful. So uh, I'm really blessed with watching what God's doing here and and encouraged. Well, this morning, what what are we going to do? Well, you know, as we kind of look around, it's sometimes things seem to be so overwhelming. Uh, And I'm reminded about the words of Jesus when he said, and he mentioned it twice, Matthew 24, Luke 17, where he said, in the last days, it's gonna be like the days of Noah. So what I wanna do, I wanna kinda start there, and uh, I wanna look at Genesis chapter six, where a couple of key things are mentioned. And then from there, I'm going to kind of jump off into a, a direction that I, I really feel the Lord's laid on my heart. And we're going to kind of end with a, with a song, in a sense. I think everything that, that we do should always end up with a song, in the sense that, you know, man, you, God's given you something. You got it. Man, you're running with it. You're excited about it. God's kind of just written in, in your heart. And, and if you follow the Old Testament, you know, the children of Israel, it's always followed up by a, by a song. Uh, they, they began to go out after they've taught. You know, they were taught, they learned, and, and they went out and they began to sing songs. They were a people of songs. They were a people of worship. And I think worship is birthed out of an experience that you have with God. It's not something, well, you, you know, we, we, we do because we have to. It's to, we, we do it because we get to. And we enjoy it. It's not, you know, well, now you're supposed to raise your hands. You're supposed to sing. and you know. No, no, no. We, we, it should be an expression of what we've learned, about what we've experienced with God. I, I have a good friend, Malcolm Wilde in uh, Florida, and he says, you know, I think we do it backwards. We, instead of the, doing the worship at the beginning of the service, we should do it at the end. Because what it does is it gives the people to respond to what they've heard, what the Lord's done, what he's touched. And then the result is, man, we, we should bust out in worship. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting concept, and I'm not cons- you know, suggesting that we, because the Bible does say, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with our praise. Certainly that, that's appropriate, but, but our worship should be something that we do because of who he is and what he's done in our lives. And it's just an expression of, of just our, our, the opportunity we have to thank him, uh, the worship. And in fact, obviously the word worship means, you know, worth we're recognizing something that's worth, you know, singing about, something that's worth praising God over. So, uh, starting off kind of, you know, the bad news, you, you know, you see in Genesis chapter 6 that, uh, that uh, God said, verse 3, that uh, the Lord said, "...my spirit will not always strive with man, for uh, he is flesh." Yet in his days shall be 120 years. God, you remember, is going to cut down the lifespan of man. And in those days, there were giants in the land. And not only that, but it says, and after. That kind of concerns me. Giants in the land, not only then, but it also mentions after. After those days. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole Nephilim thing and the whole fallen angel deal. But but I I just want to just note that there were giants in the land. How you interpret that, you know, giants as in the sense of intimidations, fears, struggles, addictions. I mean, there's all kinds of giants in our lives in the, thing, in the sense of things that we're, we're struggling with today. And then it goes on, more bad news, verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man. It was great in the earth. And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And certainly when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. And we can, you look at this again, wickedness, great. We, we, we gosh, we are facing that so big today. You know, the imagination of man with the invention of Internet. It's no longer, you know, isolated thoughts and things that people are, now you're, they're, they're putting it on the Internet. And every kid, everywhere is getting a hold of this stuff and they're doing things that you know in my day we we could never even imagine. You know, where do they come up with this stuff? This is crazy. It's just insane. And and it just becomes super popular and then you, know, you know we're watching our kids fall to this and you know and we're going, I don't even know. I can't even get my mind wrapped around it, let alone get, begin to understand it or how do I deal with it as a parent? Uh, how do we deal with it as a church? How do we deal with these these giants that just seem to be so big and so overwhelming? How do we deal with this? Well, I think we have a good example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in a, in a story that most of you are familiar with, and I want to direct your attention there, so turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I really want to use this as my, my text this morning, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. Uh, you know the scene. Uh, the children of Israel are coming up against the Philistines in a battle. The battle is going to happen in the valley of Elah. Now, even as I, I read this, as I look at it, I can see the valley. I've been there, I don't know, about seven times. Uh, I can see the valley. If, if, you're, if you're in Israel, you're, you're thinking, okay, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, facing north, if you will. Uh, and to your right, you're gonna, Jerusalem's about 15 miles, 15 miles to the right, Jerusalem, 15 miles to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. So you're right in between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. You know, uh, to the south, those are the five cities of the Philistines there are to the south there to the north Israel's conto- uh, can- controlling the north and then around over to uh, to the east all the way wrapping around the Philistine cities again we're on the uh, kind of the southwestern area of Israel the land that God had given to the children of Israel. That you know, you, you have these Philistines, and they're kind of you know, man, they're 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 begin, they're they're creating fear and torment, and and you know, they're bringing destruction. And in fact, even, in, interesting, even today, some people say, well, you, we got the you know the Palestinians, and they're related to the Phil. No, they're not. They're not related. too different. In fact, there really isn't such a thing as a Palestinian. By the way, uh, that was uh, invented. And yet you've got these people that are coming in, they're pressing, they're, they're you know, imposing their will on God's people. And you can see that right now in the Middle East, big, uh, happening you know, right before our eyes. And yet we, we also have it in, in, in our world. We have it in the church where you've got these, again, these, these intimidations, these fears that, that cause many times the Christians to kind of you know shrink back. I know... In our church, we, we, God's blessed us with, uh, with the blessing of having a school. And I, and I really believe in that. I believe we need to get our kids back. Uh, to, to give them to the world is just insane. It's crazy. Uh, you know, we raise them up in the church. That's great. But, you know, when they get into public school and they get especially into college, I mean, everything you've taught them is being challenged, discredited, and it, you know, it becomes this giant that our kids are trying to battle in the public school or certainly in the in the universities I mean look at the universities most of the of the uh, you know the teachers in the in the universities are all you know atheists they're they're almost determined to just destroy any kind of Christian uh, uh, you know roots that we have And it's just a shame to watch our our, our, you know to turn our kids over to that is just it's just crazy so God's really laid on our hearts to to grab our kids back and to really educate them, to really give them, you know, a solid foundation in a relationship with God, that, that they not only know what they believe, but they know why they believe what they believe. And that they're able to defend what they believe. That's so important that we don't just have some kind of mantra that we, we've taught them and they're just kind of parrots. No, they need a relationship with, them, with, with God themselves. THEY NEED THIS, THEY NEED to, TO EXAMINE IT, THEY NEED TO CHECK OUT THE EVIDENCE OF IT AND MAKE SURE THAT, YOU KNOW, IT'S, it's TRUE, IT'S A FOUNDATION THAT THEY CAN STAND ON, it's, IT'S A ROCK AND THEY CAN HOLD ON TO THAT AND IT'LL GET THEM THROUGH EVERYTHING THAT THEY FACE. AND I BELIEVE THAT. SO, I, BUT, AGAIN, as, AS WE LOOK AT, YOU KNOW, EVEN THE STATISTICS WHEN YOU SEND OUR, WE SEND OUR KIDS INTO THE COLLEGES, YOU KNOW, uh, man, about 90% of them are just eaten up and destroyed by the, the secular universities. It's just a shame. And we need to be better prepared for this. In fact, you remember even Jesus, when he mentioned as it was in the days of Noah, he also said it was in the days of Lot, too. You remember Lot moving to Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember he lost everything there. He went into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, man, he had a huge family you know, servants and everything, you remember they had to do that whole separation thing in the land, because it was, you know, they were beginning to fight, and, and Abraham says, man, there's just, look, there's plenty of land here, we don't need to fight, you've got so many servants, family, we, I got family, servants, man, we can, look, we, we could split up here, you can go there, you know, wherever choose wherever you want, you, you remember the story how Lot ended up moving down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and as he got there, you remember, it pretty much ate him alive, you know, it, Peter tells us that every day that he lived there, his, his, he was vexing his righteous soul day and night. And then when the angels finally came to get him out of there, all, the, all he could get out of there was his two daughters, you remember? And his wife. And then she even turned back. She missed them all, I think. I don't know what it was. But, you know, just, you, 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 you just, you, what happened? What happened? Well, we let go of the things that are important. They're no longer, you know, we, we, we buy into all this other stuff. And, and as I look at this story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, I see a lot of good examples here that I, I, I kind of want to point out on the way, just trusting the Lord to, to bring things out. But, so the story, they're, they're in the valley of Elah. Uh, to the north, you've got the children of Israel on that, on that hill. And again, you've got two hills they're not mountains, they're kind of hills. Uh, there's a valley in between, the, the hill to the, to the north kind of goes up. There's this plateau below, and then to the south there's another hill. And you could kind of imagine the armies on each, on each hillside. And then down, in fact, it's interesting, down below the hill that's on the north side where Israel was, the hill comes down, and then it goes down, and then it kind of dips down. There's a little, there's a, like a stream that runs along the bottom of the, of the hillside there, and then comes back up, and then there's like a plateau. And it's probably in that dip right there, a natural stream, it's all still there, you can see it, where David picked up the five stones. So it's, in fact, won, every time I go there, I always go down there and grab a rock and put it in my pocket and kind of bring it home and, you know, hey, here's one of the stones, you know. And, and again, you, you know the story. So they're in the valley of Elah. Verse 3, and the Philistines stood upon a mountain on one side. Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley in between them. And there went out from the Philistines a champion. His name was Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of brass on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass he had greaves of brass upon his legs. He had a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his smear- spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and even had one bearing a shield that went before him. Interesting, it says that, that his height was uh, six cub- cubits and a span. Uh, a qubit standard qubit was the, the measurement. They didn't have tape measures back then, and you know rulers. and so the, the, you know, kind of carried your tape measure with you. Uh, a qubit was the distance between the middle finger and your, your hand and, and your elbow. That's a standard qubit. So if you're going to measure something, you go up and well, you'll see one, two, three, you'd measure. And that, that measurement is about 18 inches. a span. How, how big is a span? Well, the span. Uh, would be the distance between your thumb and your little finger. So if you spread it out, open it up, it's a distance of about nine inches, which is basically about a half of a cubit. So if you're measuring the cubits and then you're going to come down to the span, the span is a half of a cubit. So if you've got six cubits and a span, that's equal to about nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, if you're a basketball player, standard height of a basketball rim is 10 feet. So we're talking 9 feet 9 inches, that's 3 inches shorter than the basketball hoop. That's a pretty guy, pretty big guy. You know, most of us, you know, you're lucky if you can reach, you know, jump high enough to even touch that hoop, you know, that rim, let alone, you know, dunk. <laughs> And if you're white, forget about it. But anyway, it's just, you know, it's, you, 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 it's up there. It is up there. You can imagine, you know, you, you, 10 feet tall, nine feet, nine inches tall. It's big dude, right? And then also, too, notice it says that uh, he's armed with a coat of mail. Now, that's not like, you know, a coat with, you know, letters on it, you know, <laughs> coat of mail. Uh, coat of mail, Th- that's, you probably see, it's kind of a, a chain link kind of uh, uh, thing that they put on uh, made of small chain links, you know, all linked together. You, you, you can remember in the medieval days they would have those coat of mail on, it would go around their face like this, around their head, come over their shoulders, and it was designed so that, you know, if somebody hit you with a sword, you know, the sword would kind of bounce off of it, you know, good luck with that, but at least it wouldn't cut you, you know, because you're, you're hitting chain link. So he's got, he's got this chain link, you know, Uh, armor on him and it weighs 5,000 shekels of brass. Now that's about 125 pounds. Wow that's you can imagine you got this 125 pound jacket on right? and and then also says he's got greaves of brass verse 6 on his legs what are those? Those are like shin guards basically you know if you're into soccer And, you know, you got the big guy, you can't take him down, so you kick him in the shin, boom, you know, and hopefully, ah, man, ow, you know. Uh, So here's Goliath, he's got the shin guards on, so he's not only got, you know, the coat of of mail on, he's got the shin guards, he's got a target of brass between his shoulders. Uh, Commentators differ on this, you know, basically it's a big plate that he either had in the front, between his shoulders, like a, you know, a, a breastplate, or in the back. So if you hit him in the back, boom, you, your sword bounces off of that. Uh, he's got a spear that's the size of a weaver's beam. Uh, a weaver's beam, what is that? Well, you've probably seen one of those... Uh, 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 you know where they, they make the carpet or the rugs? What is it, a loom? That's what I'm looking for. You remember the loom? And you'd have this big loom, and they'd have all the, the you know the yarn or whatever you know tied up, and then you know they're you, you know you're you're going through it and making your carpet or your rug, and and what, what what held that whole thing up was the weaver's beam. It usually sat on the top, and it was a beam about about two and a half inches round, and usually about anywhere between you know uh, six to eight feet long. This is His spear. And on, on the end of it, notice uh, uh, six shekels of iron is the size of the, you know, the arrowhead. That's, that's the size of a small child. <laughs> I mean, we're talking,, you know, probably about 25, 30 pounds. Again, you, you just get the, this dude is huge. He's intimidating, to say the least. And then he had,, you know, kind of some little guy. You know, out front with another, you know, shield. I, you know, maybe some, you know, he probably appear to be a midget, but he's probably normal size. But, you know, in front of the Goliath, he looked like a midget, this little guy running out there, and he's, he maybe had a high voice. Hey, come on out here and fight against it, you know, and, you know, you could kind of, and just, and, you know, and you're the army, you're looking at this going, oh my gosh, what, what, what do we, what is happening here? And so, verse 8, he begins to, to give his challenge. And here's the thing, he says, verse 8. And he stood and he cried unto the armies of Israel, and he said unto them, Why are you come out and set the battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and you are servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. Verse And If he be able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. Now, a few things to note here. Uh, Goliath says, you know, choose you out a man to come out and fight against me. Now, this has been their problem all along. In the sense of their choice as a nation, they always choose the wrong leaders. I wonder about us sometimes. I don't know (laughs) I don't know, maybe we hear these flowery speeches and, you know, Mr. Rogers, you know, story. T- I don't know what it is, but sometimes we kind of just fall into this, you know, dismal kind of, oh, but he says everything sounds so wonderful, and you're like, hey, yay, yay, yay. You know, and it's just this deception that is just, you know, here he's, you know, choose out a man. now. Now, think about this. You remember, who was the leadership of Israel before Saul? Well, it was God, remember? And God had chosen prophets. Before Saul was Samuel the prophet, an awesome man of God. God was their king. Samuel was their prophet. But you remember they thought, oh, well, you know, that's nice, but we want to be like the other nations around us. See, the influence of things start coming in. We we want to be like them. We want to do like... You know, as a church, we can never look at the world and say we want it. We, we, maybe we can be more effective if we do things like they do. We need to stop that. You know, in fact, today I'm, I'm kind of concerned that you go to church and it's hard to tell the difference between the world and the church anymore. It's like our church services turned into concerts and, you know, and entertainment. You know, where, where's, where's the teaching of God's word? Where's the, you know, the emphasis on the word of God and not all this other stuff like the world, you know? And you remember they said, we want to be like the, you know, they got kings, so we, we want a king. And they came to Samuel and they said, hey, uh, talk to God, we, we, we want a king. And Samuel was pretty bummed out. He's like, man, you know, have, have I not been serving you well? I mean, what, what's the problem here? And things were going really good when Samuel was in charge because Samuel wasn't really the one who was in charge. The one who's in charge is God. And you know, any leadership that we would choose has to be a leadership that God ultimately is the one that's in charge. Because the, in the days that we see that when we choose leaders that are divorcing themselves from God, look, we're all in big trouble. I mean, if you're a, if you're a woman here today and you're, you're looking for a guy, look, you need, whatever guy you choose needs to be a guy that's under the authority of God. Because when he becomes your authority, if he doesn't have the authority of God, you're in big trouble. I'm just, you know, it should be obvious. All of us, you know, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. I mean, we're even, again, seeing that today where we're seeing no longer are we a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now we've got these guys that are coming in, and they're, they're pretty much kings. They're, they're doing what they want. Congress is set aside, and, and you, get, you just see this pattern happening. What, why? Because we have set God aside, and we're deciding we're going to do it on our own. We're going to choose our leaders. So you remember they had forsaken Saul. We want a king, and then Saul was bummed out, or Samuel, excuse me, Samuel was bummed out, went to God, and he, Samuel says, God, they, they, they want a king. And I love the words that God says. He says to Samuel, he says, listen, cheer up, buddy. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Oh Man. Now, I'm sure for Samuel, there's a little bit of consolation there. But ultimately, Samuel knew, too, that, that it wasn't going to go well. In fact, even Samuel prophesied it wasn't, it's not going to go well with you when you have kings that are you know, not under the authority of God. Uh, so they had chosen Saul. And, and here's the Philistine saying, choose out a man will come out here and fight against me I I have I haven't thought that every great leader you could see this in the Bible that were men of God didn't stand in the background and send everybody else to fight they went out front what happened to those days you know you know, when the, the leaders, you know, they're going to, you know, man, and they're the first ones out there, man. They're on their horse. They're on the men. They get the army to go, okay, we're going we're gonna to go to them. And, and they, they're the first ones out there. That's a leader. Someone's willing to die for what they believe in. And others that are following that example, you know, somehow things kind of change where the leaders stood behind all protected and they sent everybody else out to fight the battles. I, I would just, you know, I have this it be kind of neat that if we're going to get in these battles with nations, I think that, you know, America, man, we could choose out a guy, and they could choose out a guy, and they get out there and pff, to fight it out. <laughs> you know, don't ask me to send my kids out there and my grandkids to fight some battle that I wonder if you even have a heart for. Again, all because of we, we've devalued life, and the leaders aren't the leaders anymore. Now, the good news, you know, is that God's got a leader. In fact, the previous chapter, God had rejected Saul. Remember? Because why? Because Saul rejected God. So the good news is that there is a leader among them that God is raising up. Just a kid at this point. But God's going to use him greatly because the power that this kid is going to have is the power and authority of God. That's what he's going to depend on. That's what he's going to rely on. He's going to rely on the Lord. And that, and that, to me, is so, so what? Choose out a man to come out and fight against me. And even that, when I think about that, choose out a man. You remember when Jesus, uh, who came to set an example for us, who came to give his life for us, uh, who came out front, he's the captain of our salvation, uh, he, he took it all for us that, you know, we might have an identification with a true leader that was willing to give his life for us. And you remember even Jesus, will use this, use this later on where he talks about how that, you know, it's the hireling that, you know, is hired on. And when the lion comes or whatever, man, he just, he runs because he's a hireling. But the true shepherd will give his life for the sheep, right? And you remember when Jesus came and, and, and there he's going to be tried uh, they're trying to find something to, to nail on him in the sense that something that he's done wrong. You remember Pilate in that middle of trying to figure out what we're going to do with this guy. I've got to get some, some evidence of things that he had done wrong. And part of the Roman way of finding out what you did wrong was the scourging. Are you Are familiar with that? And they would send you to the scourgers. They'd tie you up you know, with your hands above your head, and then they'd have these two Roman soldiers that were trained in the art of, you know, just whipping you to an inch of your death. And, you know, remember they had those cat of nine tails, and at the bottom of those, those leather straps would be pieces of bone that would be tied on there, pieces of glass. And as they whipped you, the whole idea was to just rip the flesh off your body. And, the whole, and then you had a scribe that was right there sit at the table, and, and he would, he'd be waiting for something that you would confess, and he'd write it down. And the whole idea was is to see if you could start to confessing some things, they'd lighten up. But if you didn't confess, man, they'd lay it on harder because they got to get something we need something on you. It's kind of self-incrimination. Man, you, man, you'd probably be making stuff up. You know, I did this and I did that. So something's up. But the problem is they're going to take that something that you said and they're going to use that against you because you were yourself, were the ones that, that said it. You remember what Jesus? He is perfect. He didn't do anything wrong. So when they were whipping him, you know, they're whipping him. The scribe's like, okay, any time now, something, nothing, nothing didn't say anything. And you can imagine those, those Roman guards, they're not doing their job if they're not getting the, the person to confess something. man. And you can imagine, they're, they're whipping him so, so bad. In fact, you remember Isaiah prophesied that he would be whipped so bad that you wouldn't even recognize him as a human being. So marred. And then from there, you remember, they brought him and they stood him before Pilate. And Jesus stood on his own two feet. He was going to take it all for me and you. And as he stood there in front of Pilate, Pilate declared those words, Behold the man. The man. Just amazed that anybody could could go through that and still be standing. For what? For me and you. That he would do this for me and you. He would go through this. Here's this Philistine, send out a man. I'm also reminded, you remember in the book of Revelation, if you're in, when John is called up to heaven and he's there and, and he's in the midst of the throne room of God and, and the voice goes out, you know, is there there's someone found worthy? Is there a man found worthy that can take the book and loose the seals? had to be a man in the sense it would be a relative to me and you. Someone, according to the, the law of, of uh, the, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, if you're familiar with that. It has to be a family member that could redeem you that you've sold yourself into slavery or sold yourself into debt. What, you know, you, he, could re, he could buy this back. And the book of Revelation is really about the redemption of me and you and God bringing his judgment and restoring everything back to a plan and purpose, but he would have to do that through a man. That's why Christ became a man. And you remember the, the cry when I looked all over, is, some, a man, is there somebody worthy that can do this, can buy this back for us? And they searched all through heaven, all through earth, even under the earth, and no man was found worthy to take the book and to loose the seals. And John said he began to cry. Is there anybody that can buy this back for, him, for us? Is there anybody that can stand up against this giant or this, you know, the devil and all that he stated? Is there anybody that can, that can do this? John began to weep and then the elders said John don't weep behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David hath prevailed to take the book and to loose the seals thereof and as John looked he saw a lamb as he had been slain and all heaven began to worship in the sense of recognizing Jesus is the man he is the man he's the one that God has sent for us to redeem us out of our mess. And here you hear this cry, they're not a man. Send a man out to me. And I just can see Jesus, man. Here's our man. <laughs> you might be 10 feet tall. I don't care how tall you are. I don't care how intimidating you look. Here's our man. Let's see you go against that. See, that, that's our Savior. He's the man. You know what I'm saying? He's the man. He's the one that we look to. We don't look at these enemies that come up and, oh, I'm strong, I can do this, and man, I'm going to tell you what to, and we're all intimidated, we got fear, we got, no, you got your eyes on the wrong man. Get your eyes on the man of God. He is able to deliver us evermore. So I see this, you know, send me out a man. And then verse 10, the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that I might fight with him. And uh, verse 11, and Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Literally, they became weak and powerless. They were paralyzed with fear, uh, intimidated for sure. Now David was the son of the Ephraimite of uh, Bethlehem, Judea, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons and the man went among uh, men for all the old men in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. So David's three older brothers were in the army of Saul. And the names of the three sons, you, remember, you see him mentioned there, Eliab, uh, Abinadab, Shammah. And David was the youngest of the three eldest following Saul. David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So notice, you know, David was a sheep shepherd, took care of sheep, which you know that's what our good shepherd is—he takes care of sheep. Sheep are probably one of the dumbest animals on the planet. You know, they're a follower. Uh, one sheep jumps off the cliff; they all just kind of follow. Hey, this is the way. Let's go. You think uh, you, they go around the back of the barn? They're lost. Ah, ah where are we? You know, and it just—you you, know—they're they, really timid. They're easily scared. Uh, They—you—you. You, you, you take them down to water to get a drink. If the water's moving too fast, they won't drink because they're afraid. Uh, you know, there's all this fear that goes along with, with sheep. And I think find it interesting that God equates us with sheep that need a shepherd. You know, we, we've got all these fears, all these, in, you know, intimidations. And again, you can fill in the blank whatever yours are. And we all have them. I don't care what, you know, you're, well, you might be strong in this area, but this area, man, you're just, you're, you're freaked out. This enemy's just got you captive. You can't, you can't get free. And it's just huge in your life. I, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's got you captive. And it's like, I can't fight against this. I can't win. I'm trying. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do it. And, and that's not how it's going to work. It has to be him doing it in you, me. And that's the neat thing about Christianity. It's not us helping God. It's God doing in us what we could never do on our own. Why would we try? I mean, God, you've got to take this. You've got to do this. And this is a beautiful story of that. So uh, here David went from his father's sheep. Bethlehem, verse 16, the Philistine drew near morning and evening, and he presented himself there for 40 days. Now, that should ring a bell. Shouldn't that ring a bell? Here's the Philistine, you know, presenting himself 40 days, morning and evening. Uh, 40 days interesting choice of words 40 days you remember another David a descendant of this David you remember as he entered into ministry you remember led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness and was there for 40 days fasting you remember being tempted in ways that you and I could not even imagine you remember that and the devil was right there man tempting him and how long did that temptation last 40 days Interesting picture there, and and how did that work out? How, what did Jesus do? Did he did he use his own strength to do it? Did he? No. And again, here's another neat thing: everything that Jesus did, he did by the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know that? Everything. He could, he, he had power. He could have used it, but see, he was going to be related to us in the sense that he knows that you and I don't have the power that he has as divine power. He knows that we don't have that. So if he's going to step into our clothing and step into humanity, he's going to have to do things the way we do. So he's going to set us an example. He's going to say, look, everything that he did, he looked to the Father to help him to accomplish. And again, it was because he chose to do that so he might show us this is the way it works. Because we would look at him, and go, well, you're Jesus, you can do, it. in fact, well, you remember the devil said, oh, you're, you're God, you know, you just see these rocks on the ground, you can just say, be turned into bread, they could be turned into bread right now, just use your power, use your power, he goes, no, I'm not going to do it, it's written, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, you remember? Listen, you, you're the son of God. Why don't you just jump off this pinnacle, man? And, you know, and, and then the devil starts using the scripture. And it's written. He'll give his angels charge over you. You won't dash your foot against the sun. You know, the devil's so, and he starts to even quote the Bible. In order to get us into a place where we're going to do this on our own. And Jesus said, now it's also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You remember that? Every time that he faced the temptation of the devil, what did he do? He used the word of God. What is our greatest weapon? The word of God. That's our greatest weapon. And that's what we hold on to. That's what elevates God above the giant. So here, uh, morning and evening, 40 days, Jesse said to David, his son, verse verse 17 now, uh, for thy brethren, take an ephoth, a parched corn, ten loaves, run to the camp of your brethren, carry these ten cheeses to the captain of the thousands, look how your brethren are faring, and, and take their pledge. find out how they're doing, and the ephoth, it's kind of like a basket, take this basket, put some corn in here, put some cheese, and go, go see how your brothers are doing out there, you know, in this battle between the Philistines. And verse 19, and Saul, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning. He left the sheep with the keeper. And notice he didn't just take off. Hey, guys, bye. God's calling me. He Left them with the keeper. That kind of, you know, I'm, I'm leery about sometimes pastors that go, you know, I'm done here. I'm moving off. And they didn't leave the sheep with the keeper. That's happening, too. So many times that happening. Look okay, You've you got a responsibility. You don't leave that responsibility until you, somebody's there to take care of it. You know, you don't just take off. You don't just, well, you know, I'm moving on to bigger and better things. No, 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 no. Okay, God rewards those that are faithful in the little things. I remember I had a, a job, and, oh, man, I hated this job, man. I was making pots for this company. I'm a potter by trade. It's, and I just, man, it was, and I had to, get, I, God, get me out of here. God, you know, I just, I, I, I got to get out of here, Lord. And he'd he say, well, you're going to get out of here when you're done doing what I've asked you to do. And I got, yeah. See, that that changes everything. And I started saying, what do you want me to do? See, I thought it was the job. No, no. It's, it's, you know, everywhere you are, God's got you there for a purpose. There's a purpose. And your you're escape, listen, the way of escape, in the sense, is when you're done doing what God wants you to do. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to keep on going on to, on to unfinished business constantly. You need to be someone that, that finishes what God gave you to do. So I remember, Lord, we, we, you know, you need to pass this on. You need to raise somebody up. They can do the Bible studies on the, you know, lunchtime. And when you start, when you get that, you get somebody raised up, you can do the Bible studies during lunchtime, then I'll, I'll open the door for you. But until you do that, we're, we're, not, we're not done. You know, I started to focus on the things that I saw God wanted me to do. And the result is then God opened up a door. And then the people that I was ministering to, discipling, I just didn't leave them hanging. David was like a great example of somebody that's really a leader, someone that, that, that cares for the work and not just, you know, it's not according to his agenda in a sense. I'm done with you guys. I'm moving on to bigger things. I, God doesn't work that way. In fact, I think that stuff follows you. The testimony they had in the last place is going to follow you to the next place. And how you treated those people and the jobs. Look at that's going to follow you wherever you go, and that that ultimately is your testimony. That's who you are. So here I like this about David that he he was responsible in what God told him to do. So he left the sheep with the keeper, took and went. Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench. It would be like the foxhole the children of Israel are in. The host is going forth to fight, and, he shouted, and they shouted for the battle. And Israel and all the Philistines put the battle in array against the army. And verse 22, and David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, ran into the army, and he came in to salute his brethren. And he talked with them. Behold, there came the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. These are the words that we, we read back up in verses 8 and 9. Send out a man to me. And David heard those words. And all the men of Israel were, they saw the man and they fled from him, and they were sore afraid as they saw the, the giant, this Philistine. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that's come up? Notice the emphasis, have you seen this man? Imagine David's going, "What? What are you talking about? Has anybody seen God lately? Have you seen this man? You know, well, you've seen this problem. You've seen that problem. You see. Oh my gosh! You know they're going to come after us. They're going to kill us. You know. Have you seen this? Whoa! 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 Have you seen God? Have you seen God? And you know, do you have a sense that right now, as Americans, we're looking around us? Do you have a sense that there's a battle between the gods? I want you to think about this. The God of Islam. And the God of the Bible? You see, this is something that's much bigger than what we're actually seeing. Islamic terrorists kind of, what are they trying? They're trying to impose the name of their God. Great is Allah. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, no, no. Allah is just one of the other giants. Look okay. it. Great is Jehovah. Great is our God. Greater than any other God. There, in fact, there is no other God but our God. And they're not the same, by the way. Definitely two different. Uh, Allah doesn't have a son. (laughs) And he would ask his sons, in the sense, to offer their lives as a sacrifice. No, our God has a son, and he offered his life for us. Big difference between the two. Battle. So, you know, have you seen this man? (laughs) Anybody seen God? Um, This man has come up, verse 25, surely to defy Israel as he has come up. And it shall be the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches, give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Notice three things, too, here that you see that, uh, that's the reward. Number one, that uh, he's going to bless him with great goods. Number two, he's going to give him a bride. And number three, he's going to free the family. Think about this. What did Jesus accomplish in coming and fighting against the giant for us? Number one, he got the world back, right? He, he's, he's worthy to open the book and to loose the seals. He've, he's come to redeem. He's going to get all that back. When he comes back, he paid for it, and it's all his. And secondly, what else, what else did he get? He got a bride. He got me and you. Isn't that beautiful? And then also, too, he set us free. You looking for tax relief? <laughs> you gonna know, set us free from all that stuff. That's who he is. That's the reward that he's, he's bringing to us. So again, and I'm, I'm I'm hoping I'm throwing these things out to you, and you're going, you're, you're sorting them through in the sense of all the stuff that you and I are struggling with, you know, worrying over. We, we look at, we, behold the man. That's what we need to do. We don't look at Jesus. This is what we need to do. This is who we are. This is where we're going. So I'm interested in the, this is great. And David, verse 26 spake unto the men that stood by, saying, what shall be done to the man that kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him after this manner and saying, so shall it be done to the man that kills him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, we always have those that, you know, are saying, what are you doing, what are you thinking, you can't do this. If it's your family saying, you know, you need to leave this to the government, the leaders, you know. Is it, if it's the leadership, you know, whatever, everybody's got their, shut up, sit down, be quiet. Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said to him, why did you come out here? Who did you leave the the sheep with? Uh, I know your pride, your naughtiness, in a sense, and and this word is also translated mischief. (laughs) Maybe if you're someone who (laughs) has been at mischief all your life, I I would offer you a suggestion. Why why don't you just be, you know, give that to God. Pastor Chuck used to say to us as pastors, listen, I know why God's called you guys. Because if you were in the world, you'd be dangerous. <laughs> okay it'd be Daniel. god 's called you because he knows that this is the way you, he 's going to keep you you know and and, and, he, and if he can use you in you know, all the whoa we 're going to fight we 're going to do this, you know uh, Better to be in the Lord doing that than in the world trying to accomplish it for some worldly goal or purpose, you know, personal goal. It's just it's just that, and, I, and you could see that with David. I mean, when, when he was, you know, doing, man, his passion, he was passionate about what he was doing. He was, he was into it, man. He was a fighter. He was a lover, man. He was just, but you could see when, when it came time where, you know, he decided, oh, I'm going to hold back, and that's when he got in trouble with Bathsheba. You remember all that? Because he, look at that passion If it's not in the groove of God, it's dangerous outside of that. You need to keep yourself. Jude would say, keep yourself in the love of God. That's it. If you got idle time, that's the devil's playground. Get get yourself busy. Do what God's told you to do because any other sidetrack is dangerous because whatever you get into, you're like a one percenter. You ever notice? I mean, I, I think the pastors that I know that God are really... They're 1%, or just 1%. I, I remember Mac, Mike McIntosh one time, he said, you know, uh, this whole idea of schedules, and he said, yeah, I've just learned one thing. You know, you just open your calendar at the beginning of the year, and you write, Jesus, 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 on every day. That's just what you do. Someone else said, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> right I mean he has ways and things it's, just, it's just a one or it's just Jesus you get up in the morning Jesus what, what do you got on the schedule today Jesus now I'm not suggesting I don't have a schedule but I'm telling you what he's going to he's at the top he, I want to make sure I'm doing what he wants me to do and not everybody else's expectation because when you start to do that you lose focus of who you are again and you keep your eyes on him so here I know I know you're mischief you come down that you might see the battle and David said, "What have I Is there not a cause? I mean, look at what's going on here. And he turned from him toward one another, and they spake the same manner, and the people answered him again in the former manner, and when the words were heard which David spoke, they rehearsed them before Saul. And so Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, "Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant's going to go out and fight with the Philistine." And Saul said to David, "You're not able to go against this Philistine." To fight against them. You're just a kid. And he's a man of war from his youth. And again, there's always those in our lives that are telling us what we can't do. Can't do it. And what are they looking at? They're looking at, they're looking at us. Well, hopefully they see God. That's what we need to see. We need to see the Lord. Uh, and David goes into a testimony of things that he experienced. David said to Saul, Your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came out one day a lion and a bear. And took one of the lambs out of the flock, and I went after him, and I smote him. I delivered that lamb out of his mouth, and when he rose up against me, man, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. <laughs> Whoa, that's pretty cool. Over what? Some sheep. Who are you? You're the sheep of God. Remember, Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but your father doesn't know about it. And how much more you know, valuable are you than sparrows? You know, Jesus didn't come and die for a spirit. He died for you. And he's your good shepherd. He's going to lay down his life for you. The servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he defies the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord hath delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> and Saul armed David with his armor and put on his helmet of brass on his head and armed him with the coat of mail. So here you got David putting on Saul's armor, and David gird was girded with the sword upon uh, his armor. And he essayed to go. He tried to go, but he had not proved the armor. And David said to Saul, "I can't go out with all this stuff on. It's not working for me. Somebody else's stuff." And sometimes that's what we try to do. Yeah, I see somebody else do it this way. I'm, I'm gonna take their stuff and I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do it like they do. I'm gonna and, and, and people go, now who are you today? Oh you're you know, you're you're Mike McIntosh this week, and you're you're Rao Reese and you're no no it's gonna be who God wants me to be. That that's that and finding that comfort zone, that you are who you are because of the Lord. That, that's so, I think that's so important today is we got this identity crisis, and even in churches where this church is trying to be like that church. You know, look, look at each fellowship is a unique work of God's spirit in that area. Don't try to be like somebody else. And I can say this firsthand. You know, I coming from California, man, when I came here and got involved in ministry, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have Costa Mesa on the East Coast. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa on the, look at the East Coast is not like the West Coast. It's different. And the sheep are different. And, you know, and I had to learn to minister to God's people the way God wanted his people to be ministered to. And I, I needed to get my identity and who he wanted me to be with the sheep that he's given me. And that's that's, way, that's somebody else's stuff. It's, it's, it's got to be what God wants to equip you with. And watch this. So in verse 40, he took a staff in his hand shows him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag and in the script or in a little pocket in, in his, uh, his bag and he had his sling in his hand and he drew out near to the philistine. Five stones he takes out of the, the brook there. And again, I could picture that brook. The hillside comes down, goes into a dip and there's water that runs in. There's all these stones in the water. David goes down there, takes five stones. Why did he take five stones? He only needed one, right? Well, if I miss four times, I got another one. Well, we know that D, uh, Goliath had four brothers. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good clue. But also, too, I, I think it's five is always the number for grace. And four is the number for man's weakness. Uh, one is the number of God. So, if you put God with man's weakness, you got strength. Remember, um, Paul talked about how that you know uh, his grace is sufficient. For in my weakness, he's made strong. You see, and that's, that's the thing. Here's David. many five, I see it with the number of grace. Five smooth, smooth stones out of the brook, put them in his bag. Interesting, too, notice David is taking the rock out of the water. Remember? You remember earlier God brought water out of the rock? Remember with Moses? Moses got water out of the rock. David's getting the rock out of the water. He said, I love this. It just, you know, and so the Philistine came on. He drew near to David, and the man that bore the shield went before him. When the Philistine looked about, saw David, he disdained him. He was just a kid, ruddy, a fair countenance, tan, good-looking. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come out to me with with your sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me. and I will give your flesh into the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And the, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and with a shield. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, this becomes very important. Notice he doesn't say by the name. He says in the name. That speaks to me about a personal relationship with this God. Remember, Jesus said, If I abide in in you and you abide in me, man, lots of great stuff's gonna happen. See, it's a personal relationship. It, it, it can't be a distant relationship. You you remember remember the seven sons of Sceva, You remember that in the book of Acts? You remember how they came and, and they were watching Paul cast out demons, you remember all that? And and, and they and so they found these guys that were, you know, demon possessed and and the man they're gonna they're gonna use the power, right? And they said to the, the demons, you know, we, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Remember that? How did, how did that work? <laughs> you remember they said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And you remember, and it says they overtook them, right? Look, no, it, it's not just by the name. It's in the name because that name is in you because you're in the name. You know what I'm saying? I like this. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you and take your head from you, and I will give your carcass to the hosts of the Philistines, the birds of the air. And dropping down to verse 47, all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves, not with sword nor spear, but notice the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Here is a key, guys. The battle belongs to the Lord. You realize his name is on you? His name is on you. That means you're destined for victory, man. You belong to him. And if you're his, he, he, okay, his name is on you. Even in the last days, the Bible talks about how that God is going to revisit the Jewish people. He's going to raise them up. He's going to use them tremendously to evangelize the world because his name is on them. In that, I love that. Man, you, if you got that, you, you, you're, it, the battle belongs to the Lord. It came to pass, the Philistines arose, and they came and they drew near to meet uh, David. And, and David hastened and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out the stone. And he slang it, smote the Philistine in the forehead. And that stone sunk into his forehead, fell upon the face of the earth. And David prevailed, over oh, the Philistine, with a sling and with a stone. And then the Philistines went on to smite, uh, and David took the sword of, of Goliath, cut his head off, and the, the children of Israel went on to, to, to win the battle. Notice, he destroys the, the Goliath with a, with a rock, a stone. Now, here's something really cool. Where's my watch? <clears throat> If you know David, and I I like connecting dots. As you go through your Bible, you can connect these dots. It's interesting that that phrase, in the name of the Lord, David mentions it four times in uh, Psalm 118, which is, you remember, a messianic psalm. And he goes on to say the stone that was rejected by the builders had become the head of the corner. Oh, my gosh, there it is right there. And just recognizing certain times where David uses phrases. Do you know from this moment... From this experience, David goes on to write a lot. He wrote all this, most of the Psalms. You remember that? I, I want to watch what David does with this. Turn from here, 1 Samuel, and go over to, uh, go over to 2 Samuel 22. And I want to suggest to you, is there, any, is there any wonder why David, from here on out, doesn't go on to describe God as a rock? Watch this, 2 Samuel 22. Uh, verses 1 through 4. Look at, from here, David takes this experience. In fact, it becomes a song. <laughs> Remember I told you that, man, a song should be born out of every experience we have with God. When it becomes our experience, we, man, a song should, man, songs happening. Songs are being written. In verse 1, 2 Samuel 22, David wrote this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of his enemies, out of the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock he's my fortress my deliverer, the god of my rock in him will i trust he is my shield he's the horn of my salvation he's my high tower he's my refuge my savior he saves me from violence remember in the day violence took over look at this this is a salvation i will call on the lord who is worthy to be praised so shall i be saved from my enemies can you hear the song I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to so shall I be saved from my end. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Where did that come from? It came from David with Goliath. Dropping down to verse 47, look at the Same chapter, 2 Samuel 22, 47. David writes, The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock. And exalted uh, be the God of my rock, the sal- of my salvation. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and may the God of my salvation be exalted. Can you hear it? Can you hear this song? And he goes on to say, it is God that avengeth me. He brings down the people under me, and he hath bring, bringeth me forth from the mine enemies, and he hath lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore will I give thanks unto the Lord. O Lord, among the heathen, I will sing praises unto thy name. Jump over to Psalm 18. I, again, it's of no David just takes this experience and he just begins to run with it. And I, I'm praying that this is what you will do as you look at these giants, man. You just, this is it. I'm just giving you know, the rock of my salvation. This is what I'm going to do. The word of God. Uh, Psalm 108, or excuse me, Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 18, David writes, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I shall be saved from my enemies. Drop down to verse 46, same Psalm. 46, David goes on to say, The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. You wonder where you got those songs? Here they are, here they are. Jump over to Psalm 62, Psalm 62, verse 1, Psalm 62, David said, truly my soul waits upon God, from him comes my salvation, he only is my rock and my salvation, he's my defense, I shall not be greatly moved. There's another phrase, we've been going through the Psalms on our midweek Bible study, David mentions not being moved some 20 times in the Psalms. I shall not be moved. I have no reason to move. God is my rock. I'm not going to be moved. Paul would pick up on that. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, that's what we got. We got the rock, guys. And this rock is able to defeat every enemy that comes against us. He says, I shall not be greatly moved i love this this is this is great um, i shall not be greatly moved verse three how long will you imagine mischief against a man you shall be slain all of you and uh, as a bowing wall shall all of you be as a toddling fence they only consult to cast him down for his excellency they delight in lies they bless with their mouth but they curse inwardly my soul waits upon god only god for my expectation is from him, he is my rock and my salvation, he is my defense, I shall not be moved, here it is again, in God is my salvation, my glory, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God, trust in him at all times, ye people, pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so shall it be in the days before the Son of Where's the key? Man, we're going to hold on to the rock. That's what we're going to do. We're going to keep our feet solid on the rock. Remember, Jesus said the storms are going to blow, the winds are going to come. But the man that has his house built on the rock will stand. That's what we have. That's what we do. We get to do every week we come together. We get to open this, the rock of our <laughs> salvation. We get to remind ourselves of who he is in the midst of any enemy that comes against us, that he is able to do exceeding and above all that we can think. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us, God. We thank you for the encouragement that you want to give to us. We thank you that Jesus is that rock and that each and every one of us can have Jesus as a foundation of our life. God, as a, a, a strength in our life, God, and we pray that you'll help us to remember that, to put these things into remembrance, to bring every thought that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for who we are because of who you are. That the battle belongs to you and the victory is ours because of our man that you gave to us in Jesus. We thank you this morning. We give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.